Why do the leaders of big media have such trouble embracing change? And what does Disney's dumping of nearly all of its broadcast radio stations say about Disney, about radio, and about the business of distribution? This is episode one, the premier episode of Media Unplugged, the podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom A. Sacker and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I'm Mark Ramsey. And I'm Tom Asacker. Tom, we have two topics today. Here's the first one. This is from an article that you sent me. It's by Dave Weiner. It's in Scripting News, and it's called Media Leaders Never Accept Change Gracefully. Can you talk about, first of all, kind of what, what Dave is getting at in this piece? Well, I think he's trying to make clear that when trends start emerging in the marketplace um, where consumers, um, audiences start drifting to more desirable means of, of media, that large media companies are usually late to the game, <laughs> in <laughs> essence, right? Um, but it's not, yeah, I mean, you know as well as I know, it's not just leaders of big media, right? It's leaders, it's leaders of, of all big businesses, perhaps well, all businesses. And that, that's, that's part of the point. I mean, he's really analyzing something that's kind of a universal human thing. He has a couple of gems in here, though, that I want to point out uh, in the actual article. Um, when your business is based on a temporary technological limit, uh, when that limit is erased, so is your business model. I mean, if truer words have never been written. <laughs> Right. Well, look, when that's that's from the outside looking in, when you're inside, when something works for us in, in business, in our life, it feels good. And so therefore, it makes sense for us to keep on doing it. So those leaders, despite what people think in these big media companies, in big companies in general, they're not paralyzed. Uh, Donald Saul wrote about it in the, in the Harvard Business Review back in the 90s. He said that what they are is that they're engaged in too much activity activity of the wrong kind <laughs> right so they're not they're not sitting there not doing anything they're just doing the wrong things well he he makes a point in here that uh too often the changes are kind of the ju uh, i can't remember exactly the words he used but they change things just enough they try and do kind of an acceptable level of change in spite of the fact that technology has circumvented um, that level of change altogether, and it's just a matter of catching up with where consumers are. Here's, the, here's another uh, a paragraph from the article, which I thought was awesome. To figure out if it's a lost cause, if eventually a new equilibrium will create a path around your paywall, ask yourself if it's inevitable that the limit you depend on will always be there. If not, then you'd probably be better off accepting the change as soon as possible, and don't try to create an acceptable level of change as the news industry is still doing. Only the full change predicted by the technology has a chance of finding a new balance. Right. Listen, this, like I said, this is, this is nothing new. Whenever customers are exposed to something new, something which is clearly novel and valuable, something they didn't imagine they could have, right? Something they desire and they, and they can afford now. Say like digital photography mm -hmm. and unlimited online storage and display of their photographs. What happens is the leaders of the organization whose success in their stories were built around the traditional approach, like mm -hmm. printing photos, they simply can't imagine a future without it. 
So to David's point, they hold on, they tweak, and in some cases they fight against mm -hmm. it. I mean, we see it everywhere. We see it in music with traditional radio. We see it with book publishers. Uh, we see it, like, listen, look at newspapers. I mean, you, you know, you, you study this, you work with these companies. Mm -hmm. Traditional revenues, ad revenues have fallen by what? Almost 70% in a decade for newspapers? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not that they don't see it, it's that they don't like it, <laughs> so they tune it out. Well, doesn't, if they don't like it and tune it out, isn't that functionally equivalent to not seeing it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, that's, uh, that's that old Wall Street expression that I, that I throw out every once in a while. You know, to know and not to do is not to know. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's another, you referenced the, uh, the world of uh, books, and uh, um, Dave makes reference to that as well in light of the, um, the fight uh, between Amazon and Hachette and, um, uh, I guess, even Disney now uh, when it comes to DVDs. And I wanted to talk to you about that a little bit because I had a thought about that. Um, it seems to me that um, while originally it could be argued that the value of a digital book should be less than, the, or I should say, sorry, the cost of a digital book should be less than the cost of an analog book, a hardcover, let's say, because it doesn't contain all those costly trappings that a traditional book contains. And while originally I think that certainly was a logical argument, certainly the way I saw the world, now I see it quite differently. Um, I see the value proposition of a digital book to be in many ways, and I'm talking value here, greater than the value of uh, an analog book in terms of portability, in terms of the ability to create uh, highlights and export those highlights and record those highlights, um, in terms of uh, um, the, the number of books you can have with you at any given point in time, in terms of your ability to share directly from a book if you want to tweet something out. I mean, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but in many ways it could be argued that a book online should be more expensive than a book in a bookstore. Well, I would agree with you that it could be argued that way. The problem is, is that people have been, become conditioned now to expect the digital price of the book to be less than the printed version. So once that happens, and then, you know, once they say, well, okay, a book, a paperback book is $10, then a digital should be somewhere around six or five. Once that happens and they see somebody releasing digital books at prices of $14, $15, without the ad any additional value over what they're getting in the $6 range, now, now they see that as unacceptable. So our expectations are, are conditioned by what we receive in the marketplace, and we have been receiving low-priced digital books. If, if, the, if the marketplace had started out with Look, paperback books are X, digital books are X plus because A, B, and C, then we may have been conditioned to accept higher prices. But that's not what happened. So but now we're all, you know. But those expectations aren't static, right? I mean, I expected my cable bill to be, you know, $25 once upon a time, and now it's, let's just say, well more than that. <laughs> well, look, that's, that's the battle that's going on. It's who controls the pricing, you know, when it comes to cable, th it's scarce. And that's why the prices keep going up and up and up and up.
But with regard to books, it's not scarce. So unless all the book publishers set pricing on, on digital books, which they can't do because it's illegal, <laughs> then we're going to expect what we see the most of. And if we see the most of digital books at you know six to nine dollars, that's, that's the expectation that we're going to have. Mm. You are listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Asacker and Mark Ramsey. Tom, topic two. This one came from me. It's an article I sent along to you from a publication called Radio Inc. And the title is Disney's Devastating Signal About Radio. This is in reference to an action last week, an announcement that Disney made that they were unloading 23, uh, they have, I guess, 25 uh, Radio Disney stations, 23 AM, believe it or not, and one FM. I'm sorry, 25 total, and they're unloading 24 of them, one of which is FM. All the rest are AM. Now, um, the radio industry, of course, is utterly freaking out about this, but not only the radio industry, because there's another article I saw from Media Daily News, and the headline read, Disney Dumps Radio. Um, you know, which the symbology of that will go well beyond the truth of the matter, which is that they had a product aimed at kids and tweens, and it was on a handful of AM radio stations. And in this day and age, um, that doesn't solve the distribution problem that they had. Um, the thing about this article that really struck me, though, was um, after uh, raising uh, Kane about the whole issue, the take on the article was, uh, was to propose a solution that I thought was just otherworldly, namely that the radio industry as a whole has a PR problem and needs a PR solution. And I'm trying to puzzle out why, in what world does um, an announcement by a major media company like Disney produce a result in an entire industry that says, well, obviously we've got a PR problem. No, you've got a problem that one of the largest media conglomerates in the world just unloaded most of its radio stations. Right. <laughs> Mark, that happens anytime anyone is struggling with value creation and, and appealing to the desires of the marketplace. The first thing they tell themselves is not, I think we've got a value proposition issue here. The first thing <laughs> they say is, we have an awareness problem, <laughs> right? Or, or we're misunderstood. If people just understood how good we were, <laughs> that then we wouldn't have this problem. And, and, and I don't know why it's, it's like that. I don't know why people don't look at the value of what they provide first and foremost. But listen, as far as, as, far as that move by Disney, uh, listen, when you witness an audience-obsessed, forward-looking media company like Disney make a move like this, I mean, you have to question the future of distribution. I mean, you could say something like, well, hey, they're not a big player or, you know, in mm -hmm. that space, or we all knew AM was dying or, or some other crazy thing. But to me, when I see moves happening, like, uh, let's say, Elon Musk betting on large-scale manufacturing of lithium-ion batteries. Now, you, mm -hmm. if you're an auto manufacturer, you can say, ah, big deal. Tesla's tiny. They're playing in a small niche. And anyway, a better battery technology will come along, then we'll jump on it right? Mm -hmm. Or you can say, what does this mean for the future of automobile sales? And when it heats up, are we going to be able to catch up with that? So let's pull back a little bit on this, um, this announcement, because the reality of the situation uh, for Disney is that Disney, among many other significant assets, owns ESPN. ESPN has a huge footprint in radio. Uh, Disney owns a handful and I mean a hand, literally the number of fingers I have on a hand, 
handful of stations um, uh, that run ESPN. However, they syndicate two hundreds of stations that uh, that uh, are owned by others that run ESPN content and are branded ESPN. So it seems to me that what Disney's really saying is, to a large extent, they don't want to own a stick. They don't want to own a broadcast tower, but they're still very, very heavily invested in uh, radio as well as every other form of distribution. They just don't want to own the channel. They, well, they're looking at where the value is. What's scarce? Right? Scarcity is what drives value of anything. Even of distribution, we you know we talked about that with Comcast. I mean, think about it. You got you got a cable company that's by most measures one of the most disliked brands in the world, yet it's also the largest media company in the world. Disney's number two, <laughs> right? So so how do you square that? It's very simple: scarcity. So mm -hmm. Disney looks at what they do and they say, "What can we do that no one else can do? We can create content that no one else has." They're, you know, that's that's what they can do. Mm -hmm. They they don't see the distribution as a scarcity issue. Mm. That's and doesn't that overlay then on really all media companies who have to view their assets and say, yeah, you know, what part? Uh, what is the scarce element in our portfolio? Right. Or or yes, or what can we create that can become the scarce valuable element in our portfolio? Mm -hmm. Because see, these, none of these technologies are going to disappear overnight. People are creatures of habit. I mean, fax machines, there are still fax machines somehow hanging on, primarily because of regulations, right? So lawyers, accountants, healthcare facilities, they all still use them, but that's today. Strategic decision-making is not about today. It's about tomorrow. And people mm -hmm. who are hanging on to the past, to traditional ways of doing business, they don't believe trend lines because they don't want to believe it. <laughs> they, they just, they don't want to believe it. They talk themselves out of it. And, and th the thing is, is once, once something new pops up in the marketplace that someone has now fully fleshed out a business model, a realistic business model, that genie is now out of the bottle. I think, you know, do you remember that 60s sitcom, I Dream a Genie? Sure. Well, okay, I think that confused all of us old guys who are running, <laughs> like me, who are running these legacy businesses because they think they can put the genie back in the bottle and then, it, you know, later on you can tell the genie what you want it to do, pop the top off. That doesn't work. Well, if there's, anything, if there's <laughs> anything Major Nelson learned, it's that you can't ever keep that genie in that bottle. It doesn't happen. Even Emerson <laughs> said it. The mind, once stretched by a new idea, never returns to its original dimensions. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, it's time for uh, the rants and raves part of the show. This is where we talk about something we really like or really don't like from this week. Um, do you have a rant or a rave? Well, you know, there's something that's, that's kind of bugging me, so I'll rant uh, just for a second. I don't want to spend too long on it because it's just so simple. I don't know what's going on. This whole knock on the ALS ice bucket challenge. You, you, you've been seeing these, these articles, you know, oh, the donations are drawing money away from other charities, or, or oh, no, we shouldn't use viral means, memes to dictate our charitable giving. It should be more, a more rational process. Mm -hmm. Come on, lighten up, have some fun, contribute to whatever you want to contribute to. Stop hoping that human beings are going to turn into these rational creatures 
that sit down and say, oh, I'm going to donate today. Let me go through a list of all the charities that are out there to try to find the right one. That's not <laughs> how it works. So I wish people would just understand how the world really works and work with it to benefit who they're trying to benefit instead of fighting against reality. That is a great point. Surprisingly, I have a rave this week because, as you know, I'm not known for my raves, but here comes one. <laughs> um, one of uh, my favorite TV shows, my wife's in my favorite TV shows, um, on AMC, no, it's not The Walking Dead, although that too, but it's called The Killing. And The Killing was the one notorious in its first season for ending at the end of the season with a cliffhanger. Everyone thought the identity of the killer was going to be revealed at the end of the first season and nope they surprised you by <laughs> forcing you to wait through the hiatus to the second season because no we're going to tell you who did it at the end of the second season and that just about killed the show <laughs> so the show's been on the bubble for its its three seasons on amc they they declined the opportunity to pick it up for a fourth season um cue the folks at netflix which i guess bought the rights to the show and paid to produce a six-episode fourth season. They call it the final season to put a close on the show. Um, and it is great. I'm five out of six episodes deep. And the reason for this rave is really because what a great feeling it is to know that you can go on Netflix and for a relatively small amount of money that you know we're all paying every month for that ability to see a final six episodes in incredibly great HD video quality, incredibly great audio quality, better than I can get on my HD TV uh, through broadcast, through Uverse, uh, uh, and uh, just knowing that it's there, that it's great, and that they are doing this for me. There's something kind of, um, uh, I don't know, something kind of uh, behaviorally stirring about that, that it's available for me on Netflix. And I, I think it doesn't take a lot of those kind of uh, uh, single-pointed experiences for people to markedly change their behaviors. And isn't that why Netflix has, what, 50 million uh, streaming subscribers now? Well, not, not just that. Look, we don't know what data drove their decision to make that investment and to offer you that, that, you know, that entertainment. But imagine if they did that with all kinds of different programming. I mean, uh, season three of Rome. I mean, I mean, I know people that talked about the fact that season three of Rome never came out. What if they went in and did some type of survey and found out, my goodness, here's the number of the people who would buy season three of Rome. Let's go produce it and offer it. So, mm -hmm. you know, a anything that, that, catches, that catches on that people want more of why not give them more of it if you can mm -hmm. without making a bet on it? You don't have to make those bets anymore if you get well, enough people telling also, you. Also, isn't it interesting? You know, a six-episode series is pretty much, I mean, that's a BBC-style uh, season right there. That's, uh, that's more of a really long movie than it is a really short TV show. Yeah, yeah, um, it's like, like Luther or one of those shows, right? I mean, yeah, great, mm -hmm. great shows. I agree. Right. That's Media Unplugged for this week. Please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher. Yes, believe it or not, we're actually on both. I can't believe it. What about you, Tom? You know what? That's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> and I'll tell you, I'll leave, I'll leave our listeners, especially our radio industry listeners, with uh, an appeal from David Bowie that says, 
Tomorrow belongs to those who can hear it coming. <laughs> and while you are there on iTunes, please rate the show. It helps other folks discover us. You can follow Tom on Twitter, at Tom Asacker, and me, Mark, at Mark Ramsey Media. Send us your comments and questions using hashtag Media Unplugged. If there's a media topic you want us to cover, tweet us. You can read the show notes and sh- uh, share the show at our website, which is MediaUnplugged.net. For Tom Asacker, I'm Mark Ramsey. Thank you for listening.